Mr. Payne was my administrator when I first started teaching at South Brunswick High School. And on this day in particular, he was sitting across from me at his desk and I was signing off on my evaluation. And it wasn't a bad evaluation, but personally, I wasn't happy with my first year teaching at South Brunswick High School. Um, some of the lessons and ideas that I migrated from Apex High School worked, but a lot didn't. They just didn't work. And I was kind of lamenting over this fact. And Mr. Payne just leans over the desk and he says, listen, let me give you some advice. It's going to take three years to get your program up and running. <laughs> and I just kind of scoffed. Three years? Like, I'm not a new teacher, right? That's what I'm thinking. And he just shook his head at me. He said, listen, it doesn't matter. Give it three years and you'll have it running smoothly. So I let that sink in, and he was kind of right. I mean, it was still art class, right? But everything else was different. It was a different building. It was a different room. It was different technology. And, of course, there were different students. So I had to modify the program to fit the needs of South B. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So in the books, the books, Making Artists and the Open Art Room, um, they contain different methods for developing student-directed curriculum. For example, like in the previous podcast, we talked about the different methods for introducing media. I mentioned mini lessons and boot camps, and then there's the media fair. And I stated that I like the media fair because it works best for me and my situation, but that doesn't mean it's right for you. And that's okay. I mean, this may seem odd, right? M like most books, unlike those two books, are meant to assist a teacher in developing a curriculum that, that would present a single, like, well-defined method, like this is how you do it. Well, those two books have several, so why? And the simple answer is that different situations require different solutions. Look, like I said, every school is different. Class schedules are different. Art rooms are differently designed. Students come from different backgrounds, with different levels of experience. There's no two schools that are the same. So there's no single method for delivery that's right for everyone, but there is one that'll fit for you. So understanding the need for different solutions is the first step in developing your art program, and then deciding which approach is right for your situation is the next. So how do you know which method will work for you and your students? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> there's there's going to be a lot of trial and error. I mean, as a general rule, I'll just state right here that I think it's usually best to start with modified level of choice, give them small steps, and then you can always loosen up as the students gain confidence in making their own decisions. Now, I've been at South Brunswick High School for five plus years, and I can say now that Mr. Payne was right. It did take three years, and I can say everything was running like clockwork. Like, I figured out how to present the units to the students. I figured out how to introduce media, teach techniques. I had, I'd even started AP Art, and that was the first time AP Art was even offered in our county. Like, everything was going smoothly till 2020. <laughs> so now, it's not just those who are new to TAB or choice-based teaching who are starting at year one. We're all back to year one. <laughs> you might have thought you had everything down pat. Well, guess what? You don't. <laughs> like no one does. It's a different situation and different situations require different solutions. So I'm going to share our current situation and then I'll explain the solution that we came up with uh, to address our situation and hopefully there'll be some takeaway that you can apply in your situation <laughs> that'll help you out. Um, I will say we are still new at this. Last semester was a total mess. I'll be honest, it was a big mess. But um, but we made changes as we went along and even this semester a little bit and this semester is starting out a lot better. So that's good. So here's our, our situation. First of all, we started out last semester and this semester working 100% virtual. Last semester, I think it was the first seven weeks of school. This semester, it was the first two weeks of school coming back out of the holiday break. 
Um, after that, uh, what we did then and what we currently are doing is the hybrid model. Now, a lot of you are probably really familiar with this, but just for those who aren't, on A days, which is Monday and Tuesday, uh, the first cohort of students come in, that students with last name, I think it's A through L. And then B days, which is Thursday and Friday, a second cohort comes in, and that's students' last name M through Z. And um, everybody is virtual on Wednesday, and they do a cleaning of the school. And then there's a third group of students who are 100% virtual. So in school, classes are really small. I mean, sometimes I only have two students. I think the biggest one I have is like 10 students in class uh, at a time. I'll talk more about what happens on in-school days in a minute. But first, um, just given that we started virtual and that a third of our students are still virtual, all our lessons are currently online. So I wanna talk about that and how we're handling that. Our tools that we use, we use Google Classroom, uh, YouTube for video, Google Forms, and Google Slides for our portfolios. And I'll talk about how we use each of these as I go through the schedule, but let me start there. Let me start with the schedule. Okay, we run a week-long unit schedule. So we introduce a new unit on Monday. Um, we expect students to complete that unit by Friday. Then the next week we start a new unit the following Monday. So here's what we do. On Monday, we introduce the unit. So we do this by creating and posting a video. Um, I, I create it, uh, a Wii video, post it to YouTube, and, and stick it into the Google Classroom as an assignment. And then the, the videos are relatively short, um, maybe five minutes, I think, tops. So just kind of keep it kind of like we're not going to get too bored. But the basic principle is it, to introduce the unit, the unit title, the objective, um, to introduce the, le the learning targets. And then we give some examples of professional artists who have incorporated whatever our unit subject is through their work. So students can see professional examples of people who've done whatever the subject is. And then we show students examples of work completed uh, by students if we have any student work. Uh, we follow this video up with a Google form. So in that same assignment, I'll post the video, I'll also post a form. And in the form, I'll ask questions about the unit. And they're short forms. I mean, sometimes only three questions. Um, the purpose of them, and they're kind of really simple, and they're often they're also kind of funny. I try to make them kind of wacky, <laughs> just for, you know, you don't want to fill out a form that's boring and dry. But the point of them is really just to see that they watch the video and they understand the concept being taught. So uh, maybe the three questions just ask them, and I, I, I put a reference to something that happened in the video. Hey, when this happened in the video, what did you see? Or something like that. Um, so really, again, like the purpose of the form is just to make sure they watch the video and to make sure that they understand the unit. And that's it for Monday. That's it. That's all we do is the video, introduce the unit, the form, and done. And I mean, it really shouldn't take them all that long, but I want to, them to get this idea in their head. We're planning that inspiration, that first seed of the process. Tuesday is what we call studio day. Um, we don't, I don't present anything on Tuesdays. There's no forms, there's no more videos, there's no assignments in Google's uh, classroom, there's nothing. Um, but it's a time set aside for them to begin work on their art. So they're supposed to be in the class for like what, an hour and a half. So they're supposed to set aside that time and work on their art on Tuesday. Um, and hopefully they do. <laughs> Wednesday, we do an artist of the week. Uh, it's very similar to Monday. We introduce an artist, uh, usually through a video. Sometimes I make the video. Sometimes we find videos online that are appropriate. And I'll show the video and I'll follow it up again with a form. So there's a form with a couple of questions that relate to the video and to the artist. Sometimes we ask some simple things like, do they like the artist's work? Which one of the artist's work do they like the most? And of course, we'll ask them some questions to some things that happen in the video so we know they watch the video. And that's it for Wednesday. Um, Thursday is another studio day. Again, no videos or forms or assignments. It's just time to make the art on Thursday. And then Friday, uh, we post an assignment where we ask the students to complete and submit their digital portfolio. 
The way we do that is each student has a Google slide presentation that they use to submit their work. And each Friday, they just update three slides. Um, the first slide is just the title of the unit. So whatever that was, they just type that in there. The second slide, they insert an image of the work they created, and they can add process images if they want. They don't have to just stick to one image, but we definitely want to see the finished work they did. And on the third slide, they have to write a reflection of the work, which includes answering an essential question uh, that was provided really in the first day's uh, Monday unit, but also we, we repost that question on Friday so they can see that and address that there. Um, and that's the whole week. Um, come Monday, we start another unit. Um, I should mention we don't Zoom much or Google Meet or any of that stuff. I do it on occasion when I have to or if people have questions or it's the beginning of the year and I just need them to understand some information. But I don't do it as part of the weekly units. Everything's online. Um, and I just feel like they can watch that video when they need to. And it's kind of it's asynchronous, I believe is how you say it. For in-school days. So Monday, I've got my three kids sitting in the class. I will present the unit in person. Um, I don't do that for my B-Day cohort. Um, by that point, by Thursday, they, they've watched the video. They filled out the form. Probably they completed the art. Um, so as for working class, I give the students the option. They can work on the unit project because they're there. And most of my A-Day students, those students will choose to work on the project because they just saw it. I just introduced them and they're kind of psyched about it and they want to get to work. They're in the room. They've got the tools and they probably figure they can finish by Tuesday and be done for the week. Um, and I'd say most of my B-Day cohorts uh, lean that way since a lot of them completed their project um, during their Tuesday a studio time and they were started on home they're going to finish it at home um in school i've set up individual centers um we purchased uh, like condiment cups so just give you an example we purchased condiment cups the kind you get ketchup in when you go to mcdonald's or whatever the little lids are like two ounce cups and i'll fill those with paint so when anyone who wants to paint i just give them this little set their own little individual set of paints and uh the paint box and i also have little individual centers for other materials like markers where i have the markers in the box with the paper and even some examples of artwork that's created using markers so that's sort of an example of what the little individual centers are like and they can come and they can just take their own little individual center and they can use that little box and basically I can I can clean that when I'm done with it. I can sanitize all that material and a lot of times I'll just let them keep it till they're done. Um, so it's not like it's getting passed back to the next uh, student when they come in. They might have it in their cubby for a couple of days. So that works really well. So that's how we're doing it. Uh, Tab-wise, things that work well um, materials, that tab style, individual centers, allowing the students to decide what they want to use, or in many cases, use what is available. That's working really well. Like instead of saying, okay, everyone is going to do acrylic paints and then figure out how both A day and B day cohorts along with all virtual students are going to all use acrylic paints for this project. That would be a nightmare. I can't even imagine how that would work, but allowing them to use what they have. If they have acrylic paints, they use it. If they have sticks in the backyard, they use it. It's working really well for us. And I think for the students. Tab things that kind of went the wayside, um, the elimination of due dates, or in other words, we used to not have them and now we have them, we have due dates. Uh, I didn't used to like to have due dates because I wanted the students to kind of decide how long it was gonna take them to finish up their project. But since we're doing a new unit every week and because everything's in Google Classrooms, it's actually pretty super structured in that regard. So having a due date, you know, Friday, you gotta turn in your work. I mean, if you weren't finished with it and you wanted to keep working on it, you could, but at least you're gonna post your process photo in there. And we are gonna start the new unit on Monday. So that's, that's one of the tab things that's kind of gone out the window.
in this situation. And all this, because of the situation, I mean, these are the different solutions that we've implemented to meet the different situations. Um, it takes three years, Mr. Payne said. Uh, gosh, I hope not. <laughs> but for now, you know, we're doing it. We're doing what we're doing um, to, to make artists. So anyway, <laughs> I guess it's that time of the podcast. Story time. Gather around, kids. Let me tell you a story. This is from Project Flop. This is one of the projects that did flop. And I think it fits pretty well with this concept of different situations re requiring different solutions. Um, <clears throat> sometimes, like even a seemingly insignificant item can mess up like an entire unit. <laughs> like you could have your lesson plan all written out. You could have all your materials you need. You could have everything seems to be in order. But it's not till you actually run through the project for the first time that you realize that one little thing makes a huge difference. And that's what happened in the case of a kite project I did with my art history classes back in Apex. And, you know, they say March comes in like a lion. And after being cooped up all winter in our musky classroom, which was really a, a trailer <laughs> with a rug and one tiny window, uh, I thought it'd be fun to take the art history class outside and let them feel the wind in their hair. And what, what, what better way to do that than by flying kites? So that's where the art history kite project, uh, the idea came about. So <clears throat> I, let the, I let the class team up in pairs to design their kites. And I gave them, you know, a long list of artists they can consider, you know, making their kite about. But I let them choose whatever artist they wanted to, because it was up to them. Um, I did have one exception. I didn't want any Jackson Pollock kites. <laughs> you know, the, the no Jackson Pollock rule, <laughs> basically in effect, um, for all my art history projects, or else what happens is you just end up with a bunch of paint splat everywhere. Um, but anyway, it's a lot of fun, but, you know, it's, it's a little too easy to start tossing paint and then just call it a day. So I like my students to put a little bit more thought and effort into the work so no offense to Jackson Pollock or his supporters <laughs> so if you've never built a kite building a kite is fairly simple with the exception of some wooden dowels we had just about all the supplies already that we needed we got the big colorful bulletin board paper that all schools use to put up on their bulletin boards works great for the body of the kite um, as well as the tails, it turns out. I just cut it into strips. And we had lots of temper paint so we could replicate whatever the masterpiece the students chose. And so I decided I'm going to stop by Lowe's Hardware where, you know, the night before. Um, and I just purchased enough dowels for each group to have two. So you could have one dowel, you know, going vertical and one going horizontal. Tie it with some string. Tie string around the outside of the triangle. And then you could just glue down your bulletin board paper and pretty much your kite was ready to go with the exception of course decorating it and all that other stuff so uh, the only added supply that I had I had to add was a bag of Cheetos because um, <laughs> there was one team that decided to do like a Scandi Scugland is that her name Sandy Scugland <laughs> I'm no art history teacher I should know her name but you know she did the installation with all the Cheetos all over the room and everything like that anyway they, they loved her work and so they decided they were going to do a, um, a, a Cheeto kite <laughs> so, you know that was another that's probably another story in and of itself anyway we had a, a pretty wide variety of artists represented besides teams Cheetos um, there was a Keith Haring kite, there was a Dolly kite, there was a, McCre a Magritte, uh, a Klein, one of my favorite artists, uh, and definitely a Van Gogh, you know, just to name a few. Some of the, some of the top, the, your top 40 artists. <laughs> anyway, we selected today uh, for flying the kites, and it turned out to be perfect for kites. Like, there were gusts of wind coming out of the west at like 25 miles an hour. This was like, I'm not even kidding, this was like perfect. Um, I, I don't really know what the wind speed was that day, but it didn't matter. This class was ready to fly some kites. 
<laughs> so we went where any respectful art history class would go to fly kites, the football field. Now, I was a new teacher at Apex High School. This might have been my second year teaching. Maybe I think it was my second year teaching when I came up with this idea at Apex High School. So, so like, I didn't know the rules. And did you know <laughs> you're not allowed to go on the football field? At least the head coach of Apex High School didn't think it was such a great idea. And, and he met me out there. And, uh, you know, and he's like, um, who said you could use the fields? And I was like, uh, nobody. And he says, well, you're not supposed to use the field. It could get messed up. You know, and I didn't say it out loud, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure my facial expressions probably match what I was thinking. I'm sitting like, you let a, like a 300 pound linebacker in cleats run up and down the field, but you're worried about like a 95 pound art student with a kite. <laughs> So anyway, after we stood there for a minute, he was like, well, I guess it's okay this one time. So this is the only time we ever flew kites. Um, and I did this project again. This is the only time we actually flew them on the football field. What uh, uh, an event. <laughs> what an honor. Um, so, so the first flight attempt was going to be monumental. Like, you know, we were all gathered around and Aaron was going to go first. Like she was going to, she was going to be the first person they selected her to for liftoff. Right. So she let out a little slack right and there was a light breeze and it lifted her kite about 10 feet into the air and then there was this noise like snap <laughs> and it's like it just collapsed like the kite just collapsed on itself so you know this one insignificant item which turned out to be the wooden dowels <laughs> when i purchased them there there was so many different thicknesses to choose from and i was just thinking like i don't want to get anything too thick because then they're going to be heavy right think they'd be too heavy and you wouldn't be able to lift off so my mistake was purchasing the lighter dowels well, it was now going to be the cause of like 15 kite <laughs> just disasters. Like one after another was like snap, snap, snap. All these kites started popping as they were trying to fly them for the first time. And, um, you know, and I don't know, all the time and effort the students put into creating, they really did really a nice job of creating really wonderful art on on these kites. And uh, and they had this dream of flight and it was just crushed in this like single snap. Um, except, all except for the Cheeto kite. <laughs> that group, that they had hot glued so many Cheeto to that kite it was never gonna fly anyway <laughs> so you know i thought for sure this class was gonna just pack it in and they were just gonna just be like come on sans let's go in and just you know kind of our tails between our legs kind of a thing but um but instead the class out of the plans um they all just got together and they, they headed to the opposite end of the field and there was this one kid michael and he was screaming <laughs> it's like at the type of his of his lungs at the end of the other end of the end zone there he's like flyers take your mark set and then he's like, fly your kites. And he had this crazy accent. And with that, like 15 art students come running down the field in this futile but hysterical attempt to fly their kites in this kite flying race. And uh, most, of the most of the kites just kind of crashed and burned. And so they were kind of dragging them, but they kept running. They didn't stop, not one of them. And um, you know, it was a race, it was a race to be won. And they, they, these kites were like tumbling and bouncing. I mean, I have a video of this from years back. It was, it's forever, maybe on YouTube. You could probably find it there. Um, and they're just getting dragged and everything. And so apparently broken kites, you know, didn't equate to broken spirits, which is really nice. Um, and that was my takeaway. Um, and since that class, that one time, I, I did that lesson a half a dozen times, I'm sure. Um, I, I improved on the dowels <laughs> the very next year, um, you know, but, and, but we re we rarely got the kites to fly. They, um, that's, it's just one of those classic projects that is, it's like wonderful by its failures. There's just so many successes in its failures. Um, you know, flying a kite should be memorable, but <laughs> a broken kite is unforgettable. <laughs> so there you have it. 
Um, maybe that's not a, a different situation, a different solutions for a different situation, but it's how I'm ending this podcast. So if you um, are interested about more about learning about choice space, you can always check out the open art room or um, making artists by Davis publications uh, online, look them up, or you can stop by the artofsouthb.com. That's my website for our school and artofsouthb.com and lots of resources there about themes and the nine and artistic behavior units. And it's all free. So you can go down there and, and check that out too as well. So until next time, get out there and make some artists.